So from Romans 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another, another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the, fa with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of, scriptures, of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, 
so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all ye peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, the one, uh, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As congregation, we recently went through the letter of John, and one of the core messages in that letter is that as brothers and sisters, we are to love one another. For only if we love one another, we prove that we are born from God. That means that if we are indifferent to each other, we are definitely not born from God. And John is very clear on that. Now, friends, it's easy to listen to a series of sermon about that and nod along, agreeing, of course, we are to love one another. That's God's command, and by obeying it, we show that we are not hypocrites, but that we love God indeed. But the question is, how do you do it? It's so easy to agree with a sermon and go home and then forget what you have heard and nothing has changed and you do nothing about it. So then, how do we put this command to love one another in practice? And what hindrances do we find, find in, in the congregation or in ourselves to put this into practice? See, there may be lots of people in the congregation that we hardly know. And we do not even make the effort to get to know him, to know them. Then to say we love them, that's fine. But it means nothing. To come here every Sunday morning and have a friendly smile for everybody, that's good. But is that love? I believe love is much more. To love one another is not as easy as it sounds. To love someone requires effort. And that effort may even turn into sacrifice. Love will always cost you something. Even if you are truly born again, it's so easy to slip back in the mode of indifference towards each other or to pleasing ourselves. So unless we constantly repent of our natural selfishness, we give up making the effort to love one another for all it means. Now what I want to do today is, is just touch on some foundational marks of church life. And it's about, and that's where it all begins, with acceptance of each other especially of people 
who think and do and are totally different from us. And we'll do that by reflecting on a topic that Paul addresses in Romans 14 and 15, what we, the chapter we just read about the weak and the strong. And the title of my sermon is Accept One Another in Love. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow men has fulfilled the law. Now that's a quote from Paul just before our passage. You can find it in Romans 13, verse 8. And therefore, it's, it's in the context of the calling to love one another that Paul brings up here a specific topic. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, Paul has good reason to address this issue. There's obviously some tension in the congregation that threatens their unity. It's about eating of meat. Now, this is not about what we call today vegetarian, vegetarianism, where because of health or animal welfare or whatever reason, some people never eat meat but stick to vegetables. Well, that's a, a personal choice. But in this case, in Rome, there is a kind of spiritual reason for abstaining from meat. In Rome at that time, the abattoirs were connected to pagan temples for practical purposes. If an animal was slaughtered, it was first presented to an idol as an offering. And after that, all the edible parts were cut up and sold as meat on the market. Now you can imagine that some Christians were worried about that practice. Can we freely eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? Perhaps better not, because there might be a curse on it. And other Christians argued, well, an idol doesn't exist anyway, so it can do nothing to spoil the meat. Just give thanks for, to the Lord for his provisions and enjoy your steak. Now, this eating or not eating of meat is what Paul calls a disputable matter. Both sides seem to have a point. So what should Christians do? What is the real Christian practice? You know what it did in Rome? They began to judge each other about it. The meat eater would say to the vegetarian, what a stupid argument. I'm above that childish reasoning. I'm eating meat whenever I like. Recognize that attitude? It's treating your brother with contempt. You look down on him, says Paul. And looking down on someone is always pride, arrogance. The moment you do that, the relationship with your brother is broken and love is out of the door. That's one side. But Paul has a word for the vegetables only person too. He said, you are not to condemn the one who eats meat. Because that's what they were doing. So, oh, that family is eating meat bought at a temple. 
It's been sacrificed to an idol. It's contaminated. True Christians should stay away from that. I can't understand why this brother or sister can't see that. The elders should do something about it. And the minister should be more clearly preached against that. Can you see the division developing? Stop it, says Paul. Who are you to judge your brother whom the Lord has accepted? See, that is the core of the matter. Has the Lord accepted someone? Then you have to do that too. Now, what makes someone acceptable to the Lord? Is it a food he eats or refuses to eat? Or the wine he drinks or doesn't drink? Of course not. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is making him the Lord of your life. It's about having repented of your life and having received the Holy Spirit. It's about being born again by entering into the kingdom of God. If someone has received that, then he is your brother. And you are accepted, you are to accept him as God has accepted him. And as God has accepted you as well. No matter what someone thinks about all kind of doctrinal or ethical issues. Now understand me well. I'm not talking now about the essentials doctrine, doctrines of the church. Like the trinity and the deity and the humanity of Jesus. His death and resurrection. The need for being converted. The central place of God's word in our life, etc. These are essential for being a Christian. But there are also lots of doctrines which may not be unimportant, but which are not salvation issues, which are not the essence of the Christian faith. We'll come back to that. But let's, let's first look at another of these disputable matters. Paul mentions one, verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Now the meat issue might be rather away from far away from home to us. But this one is much closer, I believe. It has been an issue for centuries in the Christian church whether we should keep the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment of the ten, by turning our Sunday into a day of absolute rest. I remember from my youth how the Sunday in most church families was a day of lots of don'ts. Don't play sport. Don't go for a swim. Or in Holland, don't go ice skating on a Sunday. And most of all, don't spend any money apart from filling the collection bag. It's funny how easily you take these things on board and indeed start judging others who do, who do it differently than from what you're used to. I did. 30 years ago, we moved from Holland to South Africa. Now, we had a neighbor there who was a nice guy, and he was not shy in speaking about the Lord. And on Sundays, he faithfully went to his church. Well, that was all fine. 
and we thought we might have a brother here. But to our shock, we saw him as he drove back from church, stop at a corner shop, buy himself a newspaper and a carton of milk. We immediately had to rethink whether this man could be your brother after all. Now that's the very judgment that Paul wants us to discourage us from doing. So, so we have repented of that. And in hindsight we think, how could we think so? But anyway, I would love to have another chat with our former neighbor, but I assume he's not alive anymore, at least not on earth. Anyway, over time I came to realize that, that Christians have very different traditions. And the Dutch Sunday tradition is very different from others. But this South African experience helped me a lot to come to terms with the fact that, for instance, our Korean church members in the branch didn't see any problem to take advantage of the fact that our church is next to Woolworths supermarket. After church, they walked to their cars with, um, with full shopping bags. Now, thankfully, we are past judging them for it. If they want to do that, well, that's fine. And now I come to, to an important point of application, which might be still more close to our hearts. And it's this. It's an important point. I believe as church, it is very good to be challenged on all kinds of issues where you can differ as Christians, because that gives an opportunity for growth. See, if we all agree with one another on every issue, then we are not challenged in our thinking, and in 100 or 200 or 300 years' time, we still think exactly the same. But we run the risk of isolating ourselves from everybody else and becoming a cult. Because in the end, we come to think that we are the only church who still has all things right, doctrinally and ethically. And all the rest has it wrong. And what's typical thinking of a cult? So therefore, ultimately it's a blessing in disguise if we develop serious disagreements about certain issues. Because these are opportunities for growth in many ways. I'll give you an example very close to home. The branch is a church that originated from a tradition where infant baptism was the thing to do. Nobody was questioning the validity of it. We just did it because we believed it was right. But then some 12 years ago, several church members started to question whether infant baptism was the way to go. And they became convinced over time that a believer's baptism was the more biblical way. And I admit, initially, I felt very threatened by that. Because the issue had the potential of dividing the congregation. And not only dividing, but even ruining the very work that we had started with so much faith and joy. See, the problem is, if you insist on one way being the only right way, so that either believer's baptism or infant baptism is right, 
then it becomes impossible to work together in one church. Part of the congregation would accuse the other of ruining the beautiful, um, the beauty of covenantal thinking. And another part would judge the others um, by accusing them of an unbiblical baptism practice. And as I said initially, I felt very threatened by it all and spent many hours seeking the Lord about what to do next. And I wish many a time that the Bible would be a little bit clearer on that. That Paul would have written somewhere, make sure that you never baptize a person before he's born again. Or that he wrote right, do not forget that children of believing parents are entitled to be baptized. But there were no such texts in the Bible. Neither about how to spend your Sundays and a number of other issues. Why not? Somebody suggested, and I think it's a pretty good answer, um, the following. Perhaps God wanted to teach us to come to terms with differing opinions in the church and yet still keep loving one another. See, it is easy to love someone with whom you totally agree on all kinds of issues. But it's a challenge to keep loving when you really disagree. Back to the branch. Dealing with the baptism issue. Over time, we realized that we are typically a Romans 14 issue on our hands. And we dealt with that in a certain way. We still found it tough. But I think over time I come to realize that's not a curse, it's a blessing for the church. Because we had to say, since this is not a salvation issue, we choose not to break up the church because of it. We will accept each other in love. And even if someone is passionate about the issue, there is no reason to shut him up altogether, but rather we say, friend, not everybody thinks about this issue the same way. But we love each other, and we will show that to each other. Ultimately, the point is that everybody should be convinced in his own mind and have a clear conscience to the Lord about that. And we should give each other room for that. Now I want to make a somewhat controversial comment. Over time, I've grown in understanding that we should give room to each other, to each other's conscience in this matter. So I've changed my thinking about a certain thing. I believe now that if someone who has been baptized as a child should wish to be also be baptized now that he has become a believer, that we cannot stand in the way of that. For if someone feels that the Lord has placed that on his or her conscience as a matter of obedience and would feel compromised if they didn't do it. Who are we to stop anyone from doing what he or she feels is right in the Lord's eyes? So far my controversial comment. Please think and pray about it, especially if you felt to disagree about it. My next comment is hopefully not so controversial. This acceptance of each other should also be applied if we talk 
about other churches. They, they can do things very different from what we think is appropriate. The way they worship, the issue of speaking in tongues, conviction about a coming rapture, etc. It might be hard to live together in one church if there are so many differences. But let's face it. Face it, if, if there are various churches who do different things, what is the real problem with that? As long as they believe the essentials of the gospel. As long as the gospel itself is safe in image. As long as it is all about Jesus Christ. As long as people do repent and are born again indeed, let's rejoice with them and for them. For one day, we'll meet them in heaven. So let's begin by loving them now. If we just ignore each other, or only have to say bad things about each other, what impression does that make to the world around us? Remember that Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. John 17. See, Jesus is praying there for unity among the believers in his name. And now we have to discern unity from uniformity. Unity is from God, worked by the Holy Spirit. Uniformity is from somewhere else. Uniformity is what you see if you watch a parade in North Korea. Thousands of people identically dressed, moving, marching in exactly the same way. I think that's awful. And it's frightening to watch. It's also dehumanizing of people. I believe. And it's far from how God had created people with all the differences. But unity is very different from uniformity. Think of a human body. There are lots of very different parts. They, they don't resemble each other in any way. But they all work together. They all cooperate to make a person what he is. And there you see God's amazing creativity at work. Creating unity out of variety. And that's why the church is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And all the body parts, that's us, though very different, are controlled from the head and working together to create a perfectly functioning body. And that brings us back to Romans 5. With all the variety in the church, we are of one mind. You know, Paul says in verse 7, no, none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong 
to the Lord. Friends, that is being a true church. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the body of the Lord. And there's only one way to keep this body healthy, and that is by showing love to each other. Now, the point of Romans 14 and 15 is that love and judgment simply do not go together. If you judge someone, love is out of the door, for you're looking down on him. And that's in a church of totally unacceptable arrogance. Don't do it. Overcome your own judgmental attitude. Fight it, for it comes so naturally to all of us. It's always been like that. Remember the warning of the Apostle James in his letter. A well-dressed person walks into your church. You hurry to welcome him and give him a good place. And then a drab-looking person also walks in, and you think, what to do with a man like that? Ignore him, and he will soon enough disappear. And then James says, you are discriminating and being judges with evil thoughts. See, the only one who has the right to judge people is God himself. And guess what? God doesn't judge anyone. At least not for the time being. He will in the end. But not before, before the person has died. It's only after we die that we have to stand before God's judgment seat. So God is patient with people and with us, thankfully. And we should take our clue from that and not judge anyone before the time. And there's another problem with judging that we so easily do. It's this. As long as we are busy judging others, we do not judge ourselves. And if we do not place ourselves under a continuous judgment, we cannot grow. The more critical we are about ourselves, the less inclined we are to judge someone else. We happily leave that to the Lord. In the meantime, we are just to prove our love to one another. Also by taking into account each other's sensitivities. Paul says, for instance, I've no problem eating meat, wherever it comes from. But if I'm a situation that I will confuse my brother by doing it, I'd rather eat no meat at all. That's making a sacrifice, isn't it? Paul says, I will not say, hey, you weak brother, grow up and become strong like me. No. If I'm really as strong as I think I am, I should be strong enough to bear with my brother's weakness. Or in the words of Paul again, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build them up. See, that's being strong, being able to bear each other. Bear the weak ones. Lift them up. Build them up. You know who's the strongest one in the world? It's God himself bearing the whole world in his love. 
showing perfect patience, waiting for repentance. Thinking of that makes us truly humble. See, people around us may think the world of us, but if we are really standing naked before our God, what is left, left of us and our pride? What room is there for our judgments of other people? Ask the question, you'll have the answer. Let's do the conclusion of 15 verse 7. Accept one another then, as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. As Christ has accepted you. Do you believe that Christ has accepted you? Do you realize then how non-judgmental he must have been to accept you? Learn from him then to accept one another in love. Because then you will bring praise to the God of grace, the God of patience, the God of love. Now we, we, we cannot achieve or do all this in our own strength. So I want to make some to get some encouragement from the last verse that we read this morning. Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you long to be filled with joy and peace? then you have to first make room in yourself for that. You have to get rid of being judgmental. Get rid of a critical spirit. Get rid of a negative mindset. Get rid of a cynical attitude. For all these things not only ruin the possibility of loving one another, but they keep you from experiencing the joy and peace that God can fill you with. See, you are either full of judgments of others or you are full of the joy and peace that God gives to those who seek it. And once you are full of joy and peace, you will overflow. And everybody in your environment will benefit from it. And as I said, you cannot create that in yourself. It only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. The more you crucify yourself, the less you please yourself and die with Christ, the more the Holy Spirit will take over in your life. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, we have a unity that the world will never understand. But it's a very real one. You can sense it straight away if you meet someone who is led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has only one aim. And that's bringing praise and glory to God our Father and Jesus Christ his Son. And the more you are led by the Spirit, the more you will make a contribution to the church, which is the body of Christ. Accept then one another in love and keep proving that to each other, not only with words and good intentions, but also with dates. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for a continuous challenge you put
put to us in your word. There are always new things to learn. It's always necessary that we grow in understanding, that we grow in love, that we grow in you. Lord, thank you that you've given us all a different mind to understand different things. But Lord, let's not become proud of our own thoughts in our own minds. But let's humble ourselves and listen to one another and give room to one another and realize that the Spirit works in all those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. Lord, we pray that we may grow in unity. We pray that we give away our judgmental attitude. We pray that we love each other deeply from the heart. We pray that we are not continuing to please ourselves, but that we are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of others. Because that's the attitude that Christ had when he came down from heaven, when he gave away his divinity and became a man fully led by the Spirit in order that he could be totally obedient to his Father in heaven. Lord, help us to follow in his steps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.